Coming up on the Mark Divine Show. And I start doing math. It's so funny. I go, I go, okay, so I'm 77 miles away from the finish line. How many more days is that going to be? Well, that's like four more days or like 40 some hours given my pace, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, well, the sun never sets in Antarctica. It's 24 hours of daylight here. And I say to myself, just internally, I'm like, what if I don't stop? How about I just don't stop? I feel amazing. Like I should just keep going. Hi, this is Mark Devine, and I'm a host of The Mark Devine Show. Thanks for joining me today. In this show, I explore what it means to be fearless through the lens of the world's most inspirational, compassionate, and resilient leaders. I interview guests from all walks of life, including stoic philosophers, psychedelic researchers, entrepreneurs, and world record-holding adventurers, like our guest today, Colin O'Grady. Today, we're going to be talking about Colin, his adventures, and also his Concept of the 12-hour walk, invest one day, conquer your mind, unlock your best life. Colin's a 10-time world record-breaking explorer. He's a speaker and entrepreneur and expert on mindset. His feats include the world's first solo, unsupported, fully human-powered crossing of Antarctica, speed records for the Explorer's Grand Slam and the Seven Summits, and the first human-powered ocean row across the Drake Passage. Incredible. His highly publicized expedition has been followed by millions, and his work has been featured by the New York Times, Tonight Show, Joe Rogan Experience, and the day show. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Impossible First, and now, as I mentioned, The 12-Hour Walk. One day, conquer your mind and unlock your best life. Colin, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, great to be here. So um, you've had a pretty interesting life, <laughs> to say the least. Give us a sense or give us a little bit of your like background of what led you to be an adventurer and you know an expert in mental toughness and whatever you're doing today. I grew up in Portland, Oregon. Some of an untraditional background. I was born on a hippie commune in Olympia, Washington with uh, 30 people at my home birth on a futon with my mom playing Bob Marley Redemption song on repeat. So, um, <laughs> you know, not the typical way to come into the world. But yeah, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, mostly in Portland, Oregon. And, uh, you know, my parents were young when they had me, didn't have a lot of money when I was a kid, but always kind of took us into the outdoors. My dad used to say, you know, we don't have a lot of money, but the outdoors are free. And so most of our, you know, free time as a family was spent, you know, exploring the trails and, and the, the alpine wilderness uh, nearby our house. You know, we just in Portland, Oregon, you can drive to, you know, lakes and trailheads and, and whatnot pretty easily. And so I think that was what really kind of initially inspired me to enjoy the wilderness and enjoy adventure. But I always kind of dreamed of, of bigger, of more, you know, of seeing further off places. My whole childhood and adolescence saved up money to, to one day when I graduated from college to travel. But as, as a kid, in terms of athletics, I was an, a nationally ranked swimmer and soccer player. And so those were kind of my sports growing up. Uh, I think uh, that was some of the foundational elements of, of, of my upbringing that really kind of coalesced now into, you know, all sorts of adventures and 10 world records and various things that I've done uh, in the world of endurance. Well, I want to talk about a lot of that stuff. But before that, um, I just brought a guy into my company who grew up in a commune in upstate New York. Uh -huh. Like, I didn't realize there were so many communes around this country, but... <laughs> yeah, there's quite a few. There are quite a few. Yeah, uh, 16 parents, right? Do you look at it that <laughs> way? Like, did you... Were you really close to... I was very close. There's four... There's, you know, obviously my biological parents, um, but uh, then they divorced and remarried when I was quite young. Um, and so I feel like I was raised by uh, four parents. And maybe my parents divorced. We lived eight blocks away from each other. And so we were kind of in and out of each other's houses, very amicable between my mother and father and stepfather, et cetera. And so, yeah, kind of raised by a village, so to speak, for sure. And how do you think that shaped your mindset? 
What are some of the, the thought processes or influences you have today that you think are different from like the mainstream because of that experience? There's many, but I would, if I, in a parental sense, you know, I think my mother had probably the most direct impact on me. You know, people ask her now, she's been interviewed many times, like, your son's walking across Antarctica by himself. He's climbing these mountains. He's doing these like risky things. Like, you must be so afraid. You know, she's like, you must be so afraid for him. You're his mother. And she says, you know, on one sense, I am afraid, but she says, you know, careful what you wish for when you tell their kid they can do anything they set their mind to since they were, a, you know, you know, young age. You know, there's a hugely influential moment with my mother um, in my you know, early 20s. So after college, like I said, I had saved up to travel around the world, didn't have a lot of money, but a few thousand bucks and a backpack and a surfboard, bought a one-way ticket to travel around the world. And I found myself, it was an amazing experience, you know, living on the cheap, you know, sleeping on floors, hitchhiking around, just getting by as I could, you know little bit of money in my pocket for a couple beers and trying to just be a young person seeing a little bit of the world. Amazing experience all until I found myself on this small beach in rural Thailand. And I saw a couple guys jumping a flaming jump rope that was doused in kerosene. And my 22-year-old, you know, not fully formed prefrontal cortex, like, why would I not want to do that? This looks awesome. (laughs) Of course. Um, Turns out it's a terrible, terrible, terrible idea. Um, And I... uh, it should have seen that coming from a mile away, but I didn't. But, you know, long story short, I uh, tripped on the rope, wrapped um, and around my legs, splattered my body with kerosene, lit my body completely on fire to my neck. Holy crap. And I had to jump into the ocean. Thankfully, the ocean was right there, um, which put out all the flames and saved my life, but not before about 25% of my body was severely burned predominantly in my legs and feet. You know, I was in rural Thailand on an island with didn't have a hospital. I had a moped ride down a dirt path to a one-room nursing station, underwent eight surgeries in various, you know, crazy, you know, really remote Thai hospitals. There was a cat running around my bed and across my chest in the ICU. And the physical pain was immense. I was afraid. It was a terrible situation. But I'll never forget the mental duress, which was way worse when the doctor walks in down day four or day five and he goes, Hey, Colin, I hate to tell you this, but you're so badly burned, particularly across your knee joints, ligaments, et cetera, and your ankles that you will probably never walk normally again. And I just remember this just deep sinking feeling. I mean, I think this would be a terrible diagnosis for any person at any age, but I'm 22, got my whole life in front of me. I, you know, identify being very much in my body as an athlete, you know, and all of a sudden in an instant, based on my own stupidity, no one else to blame but myself, you know, all feels like it's taken away from me. Thankfully, my mother, she came over to the Thai hospital found me about day four, day five. And I know now she was, you know, crying in the hallways, pleading with them any good news, but she should never show me her own fear. Instead, she came into my hospital room every single day with this huge smile on her face. And this just big air of positivity wrapping me in her arms quite literally and being like, you know, this is a terrible situation, but your life's not over. What do you want to do when you get out of here? Let's visualize that. Let's visualize a positive outcome. I didn't call it that at the time, but I call it this now. And it kind of frames a main core concept in my new book, The 12-Hour Walk. I call it the possible mindset. And I define that as an empowered way of thinking that unlocks a life of limitless possibilities. And my mother's saying to me, dream without limits. Just play along this game with me for a second. And I said, close your eyes, visualize the first positive thing that pops in your head. So I close my eyes and I open them. And she goes, what'd you see? And I was like, I don't want to tell you, you're going to make fun of me. It's ridiculous. And she (laughs) says, no, no, what'd you you see? And I said, well, I saw myself crossing the finish line of a triathlon. And she goes, great, that's your goal. You're going you're gonna to race a triathlon then. And I'm like looking down at my legs. She could have easily been like, yeah, I said set a goal, but I mean like your legs, <laughs> well, the doctor just told you. It's like, supposed to be a realistic goal. Yeah, smart it's goals. yeah, pretty unrealistic, right? And she goes, in fact, you should start training right now. Let's make some incremental progress towards that. That might be years off, but let's do something now. And she yells over to the doctor. She goes, hey, doc, doc, my son's training for a triathlon. He goes, what are you talking about? She goes, yeah, yeah, he needs some weights. 
So she forces this Thai doctor to bring in these 10 pound dumbbells. And I have this photograph of me with my waist bandaged from the waist down, blood seeping out of this gauze. And I'm lifting 10 pound dumbbells. And there's a Thai doctor in the background looking at me like someone needs to knock some sense in this stupid American (laughs) kid. This is ridiculous. I'm like, doc, I'm training for a triathlon. Long story short, obviously a long road to recovery. I was in that Thai hospital for several months. I was carried on and off the plane. When I got home, I was in a wheelchair and slowly regained some mobility and worked super hard to get back there, but always focus on this triathlon goal. And 18 months after being severely burned in this fire, 18 months after being told I would never walk again normally, I raced the Chicago triathlon. And to my complete and utter surprise, I didn't just finish the race, but I actually won the entire race, placing first out of nearly 5,000 no participants kidding. on the day. Yeah. Your first race? First race <laughs> okay. ever. So you might have had some fundamental athleticism you know, as a competitive swimmer and whatnot. There yeah. certainly is some fundamental athleticism in there, but what is very apparent to me and what I've, this was 15 years ago, and what I've carried forward is, you know, I've set 10 world records since then. I've done various things in athleticism. I've been a professional athlete since then, but I am certain that I'm not sitting here having this conversation with you. I'm certain that I don't walk across Antarctica solo. I'm certain I don't do many of the things I've done had I not been through that adversity. And more importantly, had my mom in that moment, we're talking about mindset and mental toughness, taught me this lesson. Because left up to my own devices, I was in a negative downward spiral. I was not gonna realize the power within myself. And I don't think when I, you know, I tell this story, I'm not like, yeah, maybe there've been un- some underlying, you know, I swam, I was obviously a competitive athlete, et cetera. So I had some of that going for me. But I believe all of us, every single human, I think you know this in your work and what you do is steel fit. We all have reservoirs of untapped potential, ways to unlock so much more within ourselves. And sometimes tragedy, certainly adversity is a great teacher uh, oftentimes. A couple things. One is your mom was your first coach. Absolutely. And she was an outstanding performance coach. Tell you what, like just listening to, to the way she articulated um you know, what we're now know is performance psychology or, you know, winning mindset. It's just, yeah. just awesome. Like what a blessing. And two, this idea that sometimes it takes, you know, extreme adversity to kind of wake you up to your potential. I have a, a, a real quick story. I was 17 when this happened, but I got diagnosed with melanoma cancer. I went in for a hernia operation because I tried to lift this like 600 pound log onto a log splitter for my dad, you know, <laughs> it was all ego didn't work, obviously, <laughs> you know, threw on my back, blew a hernia. I went in the hospital and I said, hey, doc, while, I was, while you put me under, look at this little growth on my leg. And they came back, didn't give a shit about the hernia. I healed up real quick for that. And they said, Mark, you know, sorry, you got stage four melanoma cancer. We're going to take out your lymph nodes. We've already scheduled the surgery, about ready to wheel me in. My parents are going with this. I have, you know, I didn't have that, the mom coach that you had. My parents are like, ah. And that was my first awakening to the creative potential inside of me because I immediately had this hit that that wasn't true, that that was a false diagnosis. Mm-hmm. It was my, my sad guru, yeah. right? my inner guru said, nope, that's not it. And I said, no, I'm not going to get that surgery and, and freaked my parents and the doctors out. I was 17 years old. And that's when I started to learn to trust that inner guide. And I was like, oh, shit, wow, there's something going on here. And they were wrong, of course, because here I am. I never would have been a SEAL. I never would have been a swimmer. You know? I think that's an amazing story and, and something that I'm really passionate about telling people and I speak about it a lot in my new book, The 12-Hour Walk, is the power of intuition. You know, People say all the time, I don't have the answer. I don't know. I need to make this pro and cons list and ask a million people. And I say, mm-hmm. more often than not, like you actually do know the answer. You do know the answer. A similar kind of intuition or trusting that saved my life this past year. I was... Um, I was attempting to be the first person to climb K2 in winter. So K2 is the second tallest mountain in the yeah, world. That's a dangerous climb. Never been climbed in winter before. 
and was over there. Uh, I was climbing with a partner of mine by the name of Dr. John, incredible climber. And there were several other teams over there of some elite, you know, climbers, a dozen or so of the kind of best climbers from all around the world. And it's such a crazy, intense climb that we all sort of colluded. Like we were like, obviously, we all want to be the first, but like, it's just so intense. We decided to like help each other out, fix ropes, kind of go on the same day, look out for each other a little bit. But we were climbing autonomously. At the end of the day, we're making our own decisions with our own, you know, teammate. Dr. John, he turned back on day one. He just hit an intuition. And we've been over there for two months, building up to this, you know, getting ready, climbing up the mountain, climbing back down the mountain, getting ropes, getting camp supplied higher up. And then finally, we get the small weather window to go for a push. Right at a base camp or not far out of base camp, he looks at me and he's like, something's off for me today, man. Like, I'm going to turn around. And we had talked about this. We, you know, we know that K2 has about 25% fatality rate. You know, every one, four people that summit, one person dies. And so we said, if any of either of us ever want to bail, we're not going to like be like, come on, man, suck it up. You know, it's like, that's yeah. a very personal decision. Respect it. But you were going to go on without him. That was also part of the agreement. Yeah. He said, we keep going. You know, there's all sorts of details to try. I won't look at all the details, but basically, long story short, I end up at camp three at 24,000 feet. It's getting dark. And the plan is just to rest there for a few hours and then continue climbing through the night. And a long summit push to try to make this, uh, you know, historic summit of K2. This elite Nepalese team uh, had reached the summit a couple weeks before, which was very celebrated and amazing uh, for the country in Nepal and those guys. But we we're still pushing for it. And as I get up there, I'm in this tent. And I've got my tent, I'm not kind of getting rested and recover. And all of a sudden, a bunch of other climbers come up from other teams. And I start kind of hearing this commotion outside, and they're all confused. Basically, they have forgot their tent. They have forgot their tent at the last camp. And now they're at outside in the elements. It's minus 70 degrees outside. Whoa. We're at 24,000 feet in the middle of the night, and they have no tent. And so, of course, like, there's no way, you know, I become friends with these guys. But even if I wasn't friends with these guys, of course, I'm going to let them inside of my tent. Like, there's just a 0% chance that's not going to happen, even though it's, it's detrimental to me because there's not enough space. And before I know it, I've got seven people inside my tent and eight in the vestibule. It's a three-person <laughs> tiny little tent, and I'm curled up in the fetal position. You're all just jammed in there. Holy just God. jammed in there, and I can't really do the things I need to do to prepare for the climb. I'm supposed to be leaving for the summit in a few hours, and the weather is going to turn bad after that. And this is our one and only shot. And we start obviously having a conversation and everyone's going, I'm like, they're like, oh, this is a bad situation. This is an idea, whatever. But like, we're going for it. Like, we're going to go for it. We're going to go for it. And I had been climbing very strong that day. And that's why I was there first. I had climbed faster than everyone else to get to camp three. So I was actually, I got up to the highest part of camp three by myself before the people started arriving. And they're like, Colin, so what time are you going to leave? And I was like, um, you know, it's kind of like hedging. I'm not really sure. You know, they're like, what do you mean? And I was like, give me a second. So I closed my eyes in this tent and I have a deep meditation practice, but I go kind of go inside of my body and just try to do some breathing and go inside and look like I'm the guy who has pushed through all sorts of crazy hard situations. I know you are as well. And all the stuff you've done, Mark, you know, I kind of, my brand is like, Oh, the guy who pushes through the guy who walked across an article alone, the guy who does, you know, when it gets hard, it, he keeps pushing. And I go inside and kind of do this little bit of breath work and breathing inside. And there was just a very clear, intuitive voice that just says, don't go. And I sat with that for a second and I really pushed that against my ego. Like my ego is going it's like, I'm like, okay, are you okay with this? Because if you make this decision and these other guys go and they summit and their names are across, you know, headlines, world global headlines, that's a big deal. This, like if this K2 gets summited in winter, it's going to be a huge deal. Like, how do you feel about that? Like I, I asked, checked my own ego. I'm having a conversation with myself. And I was like, I'm going to be happy for these guys. I want them to succeed, you know, but like there's something in telling me right now don't go. So I open my eyes and I say to these other guys who are in my tent now, I say, hey, I'm not going to go for the summit. And they're like, 
what? Like, what are you talking about? You're calling up Brady. You're like, what? You know, whatever. Like, we all have respect for each other. And like, you climbed so well to get here. And I was like, I am just have this intuitive voice that is telling me this is the end of this climb for me. But I am pumped for you guys. I'll be down at base camp. I can't wait to celebrate your guys' success. Like, and if you guys want to go, you should totally go. This is the weather window. And they step out into the night and they climb three of the best climbers in the world. And they never come back. I lost five friends up there that night. And I mean, the, the tent thing's obviously a bad situation, but these are incredibly strong climbers. These are incredibly badass people. The, the weather was good, like the things like that. But again, there was something inside me that just said that this is not the moment. And so again, it's a sad story. And like, certainly still deal with the sadness and trauma of losing friends. Maybe not always with life and death stakes, but like you said, and I think we all have this in us. Like I really fundamentally believe and in our modern society with our phone buzzing and our responsibilities and our to-do list and I got to you know, drop the kid off at this and do the thing. Like it is so easy to get out of tune with our own internal dialogue. But when we can tap into that, there is so much power from within and we more often than not, I fundamentally believe have the answers to many of life's big questions. A hundred percent. And it's not just the distraction, it's the pressure to do the bias toward action, the bias toward some sort of achievement marker on the board. I mean, look, you got 10 world records, right? And there's going to be a time in your life where you're like, well, that, that, who gives a shit? Yeah. It just doesn't matter. I totally agree. But it matters to a lot of people. And then they that gets into the ego personality, which says, well, I can't quit, right? I've come this far. In this moment, right? Because it's a year and a half ago, I'd already, you know, had several world records. Like I said, the, yeah. the external, the ego, but also the external, you know, it's kind of like, oh, and this is the epic moment. And then Colin kept going and he summited and like, he's the guy who does the thing. Like, you're like, yeah. like, at what point do you're like that achievement, that marker, that whatever. And had I been a younger man or hadn't had the wisdom of some of the other experience I've had, I don't know, I may have gone that night and we wouldn't be having this conversation. And again, it's not to criticize the others who made the decision that they made. It's fine to have those lofty goals. In fact, loftier the goals, like the BHAGs, is very, very motivating and, and incredibly inspiring. And it, and it recruits all sorts of you know, energy and resources and mentors, and it challenges you. And so you grow. But that, without the balance of the introspection, the quiet time, you know, learning how to quiescence your mind so that you can listen to that inner voice. And also empower the vision that your mom had you learn. There's a lot of reasons why we need to learn, in my opinion, to balance that bias for action with an equal bias for just silence and reflection and doing nothing. How did you learn that? I love that you say that because quite literally, my new book is a call to action for people to take a 12-hour walk in silence, no music, nice. no podcast by themselves. That's literally the whole entire purpose. So we could talk more about that. But how did I learn that? It's so funny. So I have five older sisters, big family. I'm a, you know, classically extroverted person, very social, etc. And I remember my sisters used to say to me, like, I, you know, they'd like go into their bedroom, and I'd want to follow them in there, just like chatting to them, annoying them like a little brother does, right? They're like, you never want to be alone. Like you never want to be alone. And, and I, I thought that was true. Until I realized that four hours every single day, I didn't realize it's literally reflecting back on my life, you know, into my late 20s and 30s going like, Yes, I'm an extroverted person, except for I swam four hours a day, every single day. And that is the least social sport ever. There's like, there's no way to talk to anybody. You can't even right. barely see anything. There's no external inputs, which is I realized... In your head and with your breath. Yeah, head and breath, right? And so I realized that unbeknownst to me, I guess, unconsciously, I was doing a deep solitude meditative practice, which is the mental toughness required of swimming back and forth a 25-yard pool endlessly for day after day after day. 
I took that one step further, which was a huge, massive shift for me in my life in um, 2011. So after winning that Chicago triathlon, I quit my career in finance and ended up racing triathlon professionally, far less lucrative of a career, but I was passionate about exploring limits of my body, raced for the US national team, 25 countries, six continents all around the world. And I was pretty early in my professional career, maybe a year or so in, and I'm doing this race. And my friend uh, who lived nearby came to the race and he brought his wife. And his wife, I'd met her a couple of times, didn't know her super well, Turkish woman, they recently married. And she pulls me aside after the race and she goes, I've never really been at a professional sporting event before. Like, I'm not like into sports. I'm like, oh, that's cool. She's like, oh, it was fantastic to watch this. And she just looks at me and she goes, so what are you doing to train your mind? Just like a super reasonable question. And I feel like I have been caught with my pants down. I'm like, um, I, uh, you know, some visualization, you know, like I, I don't have an answer. Like I'm like, um, some visualization, mental stuff, like whatever. And she's like, wait a second. I just saw you crush yourself for two hours with some of the best athletes in the world. Obviously you swim a lot, you bike a lot, you run a lot, but you're telling me like with how hard you're pushing your body in that way, you're not actually doing true like mental training, like a daily practice of some kind. And I'm like, um, no, I guess not. And I was just finally like vulnerable enough to be like, what do you recommend? And she looks at me, she goes, look, I'm not an athlete. She goes, but I've done this thing several times. It's changed my mindset in a completely different avenue of her life. And I was like, what is it? She goes, I go to these silent meditation retreats, 10 day Vipassana meditation. So tell me more about it. She goes, it's free to go. It's 10 days, no reading, no writing, no eye contact. And you know, they kind of teach you how to do that. And I was like, well, I've never meditated for a minute in my life. Can I go? And she was like, most people would meditate longer than that before they went. But you're, you know, and I was like, I'm going, you know, I'm like diving the head deep end kind of person. Of course. And so I sign up for a 10 day silent meditation retreat, having never meditated a minute in my life. And it's safe to say without all cliches aside, I mean, it was life changing. It, it really opened up my mind and allowed me to have then the mental and daily practice to actually realize like, oh, I love to say now the most important muscle any of us has is the six inches between our ears. And I say muscle intentionally because I think sometimes we forget. I know you don't forget, but oftentimes people forget like, if you want to get big biceps, go rip bicep curls and do the bench press. You want to have a strong mind? Well, you need to take your mind to the mental gym and actually put the reps in to flex and develop that muscle. And a decade or so ago with Vipassana meditation was my on-ramp to that, particularly my on-ramp, not just the mental toughness side, but to the silence, the stillness, the power from within by being rather than doing, like we said before. Okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Divine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. And now back to the show. It's really actually quite simple when you start to apply mental training techniques such as meditation and visualization and breath work to strengthen and concentrate the mind because, you know, especially you, you're a finance guy. I was a Navy SEAL. Like we train a lot of concentration techniques without even knowing it. But then if you can't get in and open your heart and, and join heart and mind, which is actually the name, one of our events is called Kokoro. The 50, you would love this, by the way. It's 50 hours nonstop kind of Navy SEAL Hell Week. We call it Kokoro because Kokoro means merging your heart and your mind into your actions. And that's what allows you to, to accept help and to be a great teammate and to, and what you said earlier, recognize it's not just about you. This is about the team. It's about doing something good for humanity. You know, I love what you said there because it, it couldn't be more, could be a more apropos to my life. And I'm just smiling ear to ear here and what you're talking about because I resonate so much with it. 
So many years after that first Vipassana meditation, I attempt to be the, become the first person to cross the entire continent of Antarctica, solo and unsupported. I remember that, by the way. That's pretty intense. Yeah. So 54 days alone in Antarctica. It's a thousand miles, basically just short of a thousand miles. I'm pulling a 375-pound sled. And because unsupported, it means no resupplies of food. Was there somebody else doing it the same time as you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you that part of it, too. Basically, yeah, unsupported means no resupplies of food or fuel. So basically, whatever you're taking with you from the beginning, that's it. There's no like depots and something dropping off extra food for you. And that makes it, that's what no one had ever done before because it's like the purest form of polar travel. But you got to go a thousand miles, you're by yourself. You're like, well, if I take a thousand pounds of food, I'm never going to be able to pull my sled on the first day. You know, if I take 50 pounds of food, I'm going to run out in a couple of weeks in. You know, people had attempted this crossing, people had run out of supplies, someone had died attempting this crossing. People are like, the math equation doesn't quite add up. Like, you can't quite bring enough. I was burning 10,000 calories a day. I was eating 7,000 from day one. So, can you imagine by the end, I was uh, a bag of bones, to say the least. And yes, there was another guy out there battling. So, I, I set this goal for myself, trained up for a year, you know, built the project, the logistics, the sponsors to be able to afford it, et cetera. I'm getting ready to fly down there, do this interview with the New York Times, announcing it to the world. And I'm basically on the same day, this British guy, a British Special Forces guy actually announces the same project in the London Telegraph. And we find out <laughs> about each other like, oh, wait, you're at the same time? Like, um, wow. like, what's your plan? And turns out there's very, you know, very little logistic. It's not like you can like book a, a flight on kayak, like down to where you, the edge of Antarctica, right. right? So there's one guy basically with one plane, they can take you to the edge of Antarctica. We obviously both called the same guy. So before we know <laughs> it, we're sitting shoulder to shoulder in a cargo plane being flown to the edge of the Antarctic continent, not only now racing history, but shoulder to shoulder getting dropped off on the exact same day to now battle head to head a thousand no mile way. journey pulling these sleds. And this guy is, is a badass. His name's Captain Lewis Rudd. Like I said, British Special Forces guy, very experienced in Antarctica, much more experienced than I was at that point. And it was an intense battle. You know, long story short, he kicks my ass in the first week, like completely so much so that on the first day I'm pulling my sled, I can barely move it. I start crying on the first day, feeling so sorry for myself because I can only pull it like 10 steps at a time. But Antarctica doesn't take it easy on you. When you uh, when it's minus 40 degrees outside and you start crying, well, the tears, they actually freeze to your face, which is like the most all-time, most pathetic feeling that, is you, pathetic. Can ever, oh that you can ever have. Um, I mean, there's so <laughs> many different bits and pieces. And I pulled my sled. Ultimately, I, I, I caught up to Captain Lou on the sixth day, came in front of him, stayed in front of him, until the end and, and completed the crossing first. I was pulling my sled 12 hours a day and I love to talk more about this new book and what that means. It's called Action for People. But what you're talking about, the heart resonates so much with me. I wrote a book about specifically about the Antarctica crossing a few years ago called The Impossible First. It's a New York Times bestselling memoir about the crossing specifically. And the last chapter of that book is not titled I did it, I'm awesome, or I won the race, or look how awesome I am. The last chapter of that book, which is about the conclusion, which is about me coming first, I suppose, in this race, is titled Infinite Love. Because after all the competitiveness and the intensity and pushing my body and the achievement and the goal, what I actually felt at the end of that journey was this deep, deep, deep resonance in my heart and soul, a connectedness to my family, a connectedness community, a connectedness to the camaraderie of my competitor, Captain Lou, ultimately, like love and compassion for him being out there and him actually being out there elevating me to become my best and a gratitude and love for that. And so I literally, it might sound silly, but I stood out there 
on the ice on these last couple of days with my arms outstretched. And I would say out loud, like infinite love, infinite love, because I just felt this deep resonance with soul spirit. It's one of the most beautiful, if not the most beautiful experience of my entire life. And it had nothing to do with the you know, the external achievement of the goal and had much more to do with connecting that muscle between the six inches between the ears. And like you said, the other most important muscle, that heart and that soul. And, and to me, that is uh, what has stuck with me way, way beyond the, the achievement of the, of the goal. Just show you that spiritual development or spiritual growth or awakening can happen in so many ways. And, and the physical life is a legitimate path. You're just burning off all of the negativity, all the karma, all that, you know, what the yogis would call saucha, the purity, the purification, and cleansing your mind. You're out in nature, you know, you're in a constant meditation after the first few days of that, probably. A hundred percent. You know, so you've gone quiet inside, even though you're doing an activity. Right. And all of that comes together, and then the release at the end of it, and right, you have this just extraordinary experience. It's powerful. And yeah, and so really the the new book that's just out called The 12-Hour Walk is built off this, but in an accessible way at scale. I recognize not everyone's going to go pull a 375-pound sled across Antarctica, as I think in your work, you've recognized not every person is actually training to be a Navy SEAL or this, but average civilians are like, but I want to understand the intensity. I want to put my mind and body through this to have this spiritual and emotional growth. And so the 12-hour walk was born from the COVID lockdown, actually, you know, even after having this kind of spiritual awakening within my own self and mindset from walk crossing Antarctica and other things I've done, like after that, I rode a boat across the Drake Passage, the most dangerous stretch of ocean in the world, 40-foot swells and 28-foot rowboat. No one had ever done that and various other things like that. I found myself during the COVID lockdown, locked down in my house, just like the rest of us, everything's canceled, everything I got going on canceled, staring at my phone, looking at my social media too much, you know, doom scrolling the news and all these headlines. And long story short, man, I felt pretty far away from that infinite love feeling. I felt depressed. I felt anxious. I felt fearful. I felt just disrupted in my life. Like what's going on? I thought back, when was the last time that I felt that deeply connected? And I said, I said to my wife, I was sitting on the Oregon coast where we were for lockdown, my wife and my dog in this little cabin. I was like, now, the last time I felt that connected was actually pulling my sled across Antarctica 12 hours per day. And so I said to her, this might sound ridiculous, but I'm going to go out tomorrow all day by myself and go for a long walk, probably 12 hours. She's like, great, have fun. I'll see you at dinner or whatever. She just kind of laughs at me. And I step outside my front door and I go for a walk. And 20 minutes in, my phone buzzes in my pocket. Buddy of mine's texting me, pull up my phone, I'm about to text him back. And I'm like, what am I doing? Like, I've been literally like just doom scrolling the news, like two and whatever. I was like, I don't need my phone for this. So I put my phone in airplane mode and I ended up walking alone in silence, no music, no podcast. I did this. That's what I did in Antarctica too. I deleted all my content before Antarctica. So those 54 days were spent in complete silence. And I get back to my front door and I've tapped back into this. I've tapped back into this self, like all of a sudden, just that worry, that fear, that anxiety, being outside, putting my body through this, switching off the you know external you know inputs of the phone and music and all these things. And I just kind of felt all of a sudden better than I felt in a long time. And I walked back through the front door. My dog jumps up on my lap. My wife looks over me and she goes, you're back. And I was like, yeah, I told you I'd come back around dinner. She goes, no, 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 you're back. Like she can see that my spirit, you know, the light in my eyes is back. Now I did this and, and admittedly, I thought to myself, okay, cool. Like I'm the guy who walked across Antarctica 12 hours a day alone for 54 days. I go for a long walk. It feels good to me. Like maybe this is like a me thing, like whatever. I don't think this has broad applications, but as we all did, I think during COVID lockdown had, I had family and friends and colleagues and people in my community that were struggling, you know, have going through hard times in their own life for various reasons. 
And so I started telling people, hey, I did this 12-hour walk. It was a massively, hugely positively influenced on me. Maybe you should try it. And before I knew it, dozens of people, fit, not so fit, young, not so young, old, my 77-year-old mother-in-law. And I said, look, this is not a race. I don't care if you go for one mile or 50 miles. I don't care if you take a bunch of breaks, but commit to the 12 hours, move your body when you can. And like I said, for my 77-year-old mother-in-law, that looked like one time around her block. And then she sat on her front porch and in silence for an hour and then did another lap around her block. For my ultra marathon friend, he did you know 50 miles or whatever that is, practically running the whole thing. And neither one of them are doing the 12-hour walk better than the other. The one thing that everyone has in common around this, well, I'm so excited about this book, but more importantly, I'm excited about the global movement I'm building around it is this is free. This is outside your front door. You can do this any day of the week. And in just 12 hours, you can harvest a massive shift. You can really, really sharpen, conquer your mind in instrumental ways. And the book itself is edge of your seat storytelling from the Drake passage, from Everest, from K2. You know, it's like, it's an exciting read, but through the lens of battling the limiting beliefs that we all have inside of us, right? I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. I don't like being uncomfortable. What if I fail? What if people criticize me? And realizing that not just by reading this book and taking my word for it, and I know that you embody this in your work, you're like, no, I can teach you something, but you got to feel it for yourself. Yeah, you got to embody it. You got to actually have a visceral embodied experience. And this is in the most accessible way, an invitation. And, and my biggest goal with this is to empower 10 million people, inspire 10 million people to take this 12-hour walk free right outside your front door. And you, know, you can sign up on my website, 12hourwalk.com, pick a date. And basically what that does is holds you accountable to a date. And I'm going to show up in your inbox as a, an accountability partner to say, hey, you're doing this next week, right? And track you on your, on your way. But uh, that's what I'm excited about, about spreading that message. I know it's something, uh, and I think anyways, it's something that you resonate with knowing uh, a little bit about your work and all the amazing things you've done to help people find this within their own self. Because we are powerful beyond measure, but we can also so easily, myself included, get in our own way, have our mind trip us up and lose our uh, connectedness to spirit for sure. I love it. I love it. I mean, I, I'm going to do it, by the way. We used to take clients, our high-end clients you know, who are coaching with us for a year long, we would take them on a 12-hour hike. And it was just because it was half of 24 hours. There was no, nothing special about the number. And we usually go about 35, 36 miles and we'd finish up with 300 burpees at the end. But I always, and this is the, the part where it differs, you know, so I'm not saying that I had the same idea. Right no, now. I love this. I love it. But yeah. I would encourage everyone, I would encourage the team to not talk and to put their phones down. And what I noticed, and, and I want to bring it back to this, is just how hard it was for everyone to do that. Especially if you go together, and this is why I think your idea is great, but it really should be done alone. It's meant to be done alone. It's meant yeah, to be done no, alone. No yep. chit chat. Leave your phone behind. A few things will happen. I'm sure you go through it in the book, but you know your mind just settles down, and all the fear that you're missing out on something, you know, it reveals itself to you is just false. And then you get into that really extended flow state. Like we see that in our Kokoro camp, is 50 hours of nonstop training. We have people experiencing like eight-hour flow states toward the end of the of the experience, and they've been like physically just beat the crap out of. Right? There's nothing left physically yet. They're gaining strength. They're pulling it from somewhere. It's extraordinary. And I've seen this happen over and over again with people with the 12-hour walk, and it's derivative of my own experience, which is the physics on my body of pulling that 375-pound sled and not eating enough food for 54 days in a minus 40-degree environment. My body was wrecked by the end. I mean, yeah. I was a bag of bones. It should be breaking down and, and 
you know, turning into a pile of dust. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've got frostbite on my cheek and face. My fingers are cracking. I'm like putting super glue in my fingers because they're cracking because of the so cold. <laughs> I mean, I'm just beat up, like as beat up as I you know. And I anticipated that, but I was really in a dark place physically. But the silence and the stillness and the quiet in my brain, I tapped into these flow states myself in such a deep way that as though my body was declining, my mind got stronger and sharper and more focused. And actually, I was very low on food at the very end. But, you know, my average mileage was about 15, 20 miles per day by the end once my sled got a little bit lighter from eating the food. And I start pulling my sled, ends up being Christmas Day, actually, it was the 53rd day I was out there. Start pulling my sled. I'm really low on food anyways. And I tap into this flow state. I've tapped into others throughout this journey being so quiet in my mind, but I tap in just deep, deep, deep inside. And all of a sudden, I feel stronger than I've ever felt in my entire life. And I start doing math. It's so funny. I go, I go, okay, so I'm 77 miles away from the finish line. How many more days is that going to be? Well, that's like four more days or like 40 some hours given my pace, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, well, the sun never sets in Antarctica. It's 24 hours of daylight here. And I say to myself, just internally, I'm like, what if I don't stop? How about I just don't stop? I feel amazing. Like I should just keep going. And I commit to myself on hour one of this day. I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to set up my tent again until I'm done with this thing. And I end up for 33 hours nonstop in the deepest flow state of my life, pulling for 77 miles, not on the first day, not on the second day, but on the 53rd and 54th day finishing this thing because, and that's what you do with your clients. Like you can find these places in our mind and all of a sudden you're, you realize how much more strength you have, how much further you can go. You know, that there are limits well beyond what we think our where our first point our mind tells us, oh, you couldn't possibly go one more day. And you reflect on that from day one where I'm crying, I can barely pull my sled an hour one. It's not like I took a day off in between there. I got physically weaker every single day. I mean, the science proves that out. But that strength was within built and built and built till I found myself in this flow state doing something that's almost hard even having lived it to wrap my mind around what I pulled off in that final 33-hour push. The first quarter of any challenge is harder than the last quarter. Agreed. It's incredible. I love that. I, I'm going to encourage everybody to do that. I'm going to go sign up for a 12-hour walk. I could use use one of those myself right now. <laughs> love it. And I'll encourage it. our community to do it. I think that's terrific. So the book is out or where are we at with it? The book is out. Yeah, you can get the book anywhere, 12-hour walk, um, You know, Amazon, local bookstore, Barnes & Noble, airports, et cetera. It's everywhere. And uh, yeah, you can sign up. Uh, it's completely free to sign up at 12hourwalk.com. Uh, there's also an app that I built that allows your phone to be in airplane mode, but everyone's like, but I might get lost without a map. And I said, <laughs> great. So I'm going to solve that for you. I'm going to create a map thing based on a Google Maps overlay, but in my app that tracks you in airplane mode. So you know where you are, you know where you've been, you can reflect on your walk. And now you don't have any excuses as to, well, I turned my phone on, I answered my Instagram and these five emails because I was also <laughs> looking at the map. So I've solved that for you. So um, there's a whole digital ecosystem online, obviously in the book as well. There's FAQs answering, you know, people have normal questions. Where do I go to the bathroom? Or what should I eat? You know, things like that. And then the book is really about mindset. And it's an essential companion to doing the walk. But it's amazing, man. We've already had people in every single time zone, every single continent, except for Antarctica, although I think I did some 12-hour walks down there a couple of years ago. So uh, it counts. But you know, we've got people literally every time zone, every single day doing this walk. So continuously 24 hours around the clock, there are people out in the world experiencing the power of the 12-hour walk. And um, like I said, my goal is to inspire 10 million people to take this walk and unlock the power from within and unlock that possible mindset. So love you and anyone else listening to uh, go to 12hourwalk.com, sign up. Uh, you'll thank yourself. It's truly a gift that, uh, not for me, but it's a gift that you can give yourself. 
Yeah, I totally agree. And the more people who develop the capacity for that quietude and that internal, it doesn't just help them, it helps everybody. Totally. Yes, it's a ripple effect of positivity in the in your community, your, your your immediate community, your family, your colleagues, your your inner self, etc. And that's you know, when I think about ten million people having done the walk, I also think about the multiplication on that of the others, the ripple effect uh, of people in proximity. Our vision and mission is to transform hundred million people through our integrated development, vertical development, you know, becoming more whole, more complete. And, and silence is a big part of our training methodologies. And so, one of the things I often say is, for the first time that we are aware of in human history, we can scale consciousness because of what you're doing and what others are doing and what we're doing. So imagine if 100 million people were silent and also visualizing that positive future like your mom was talking about. So powerful. Being the change that Gandhi talked about, being the change you want to see in the world at scale. That's where it's at. Yes, yes, yes. You're speaking my language, man. I, like I said, I admire the hell out of all the stuff you're doing. And uh, it's always so fun to encounter like-minded folks. Yeah, likewise. What's next for you? I don't have the next adventure on the immediate horizon. I am trying to start a family right now. So a different event, adventure of a different kind of uh, fatherhood. But there will, of course, be other expeditions and other adventures that I'm always, I've, I've got a you know list of ideas. There's a little bit of an internal shift for me. I've definitely been driven by achievement in all sorts of ways in my life, and I'm still driven by that in certain capacities. But whatever I do next has to also really deeply speak to my heart, my soul, and you know, curiosity around that. Uh, so we'll see. Like I said, there's a list of ideas, uh, nothing I've shared with the world yet, but there certainly will be more because I learned so much. But I'm really, as uh, knowing your work from afar, I think you are as well, you know, this point in my career have a excitement around inspiring others and seeing that change in others just for the 12 hour walk. It's so fun. I encourage people to set an intention before and reflect on it after via video and just getting these videos and reflections from other people that are, you know, coming to this experience, you know, and they're a completely different frame of reference to the world that I have and just seeing that light up people. You know, that's my current Everest. Climbing that mountain is uh, really fun and rewarding in a, in a deep, deep way. Well, it's been such an honor to chat with you and to get to know you and I'm stand by to support your your vision and uh, let us know how we can help beyond walking for 12 hours and quiet, which I'm looking forward to doing. <laughs> awesome. Can't wait to hear about how your experience goes. Right on. All right, Colin. Thanks so much and uh, have a great day. Booyah. What a great episode. Colin O'Brady, what a fascinating man. Like, I can't believe some of the things that this guy has done. Very, very cool. I'm so stoked to have met him and I'm going to go do the 12 hour walk. Fascinating stuff. Anyways. Thanks again, Colin. Show notes and transcripts are up at markdevine.com. Video will be at our YouTube channel, markdevine.com slash YouTube. On Twitter, you can find me at markdevine and on Instagram and Facebook at realmarkdevine. And you can always send me a note at LinkedIn. Quick plug for our newsletter, Divine Inspiration. Comes out every Tuesday with my blog and with other top of mind inspirational people, stories, habits, whatever. And also a condensed show note synopsis of the podcast. So you can uh, get a glimpse there. Go to markdevine.com to subscribe if you're not on that list. Shout out to my amazing team, Jeff Haskell, Jeff Torres, Q Williams, Jason Sanderson, who bring this incredible show to you every week. Appreciate your reviews. If you haven't reviewed or rated it, please consider doing so at Apple or wherever you listen to it. It helps other people find it and gives us the credibility to keep things rolling and growing. World's changing fast and we seem like we're divided and alone, but we're not because we are unbeatable and we are a tribe and we're going to support each other and we're going to be the change you want to see in the world. So I thank you for being part of that journey. And until next time, be unbeatable, stay focused, and uh, booyah out here.
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.